I'm Hannes Roth. I'm here with my co-host Katharina Lauer, and this is Data for Life. Hey, this is our first podcast. We're going to have an exciting guest today. And as always, there is this wonderful co-host that I'm having. Hi, Kathy. How are you doing? Hey, Hannes. Great to hear you. And yeah, I'm also extremely excited to kick off our first podcast of our series. I'm particularly excited to have a female entrepreneur on the podcast today. Her name is Maria Chatsu, and she is the co-founder of LifeBit, an open science advocate, and further the founder of the nonprofit organization Innovation Forum. Yeah, I mean, she's, she's doing it all, right? She's been an academic, she has been to numerous countries, she is an entrepreneur, very successful one, just raised a substantial amount this year. I'm very, very, very happy to have her and looking forward to our conversation with her. So Maria, it's very good to have you. Thank you very much for joining our podcast. It's very great to have someone from LifeBit here, particularly reading the good news about your company, getting a vast majority of partners from all across the industry. That, that's pretty exciting. But actually, what I would like to do before we really start talking about your company, I would like to um, start with you again, because many know you, but <laughs> maybe not as good as they can or should. What really strikes me at the very beginning is that you started everything in Barcelona and then moved to the United Kingdom for some reason. My impression was Barcelona is the research site and UK is the company site. Is that true? Thank you for having me. I've been a very typical, you know, gypsy researcher. I did my undergrad in computer science, biomedical informatics, uh, then my first master in bioinformatics in, in Greece, actually, where I would say originally from, because by now I was almost, you know, two thirds of my life abroad. Then soon after that, I moved to Sweden when I worked at Stockholm Universitat and then in the Silaf lab and did some projects also at Karolinska, where also I did like a second master there. Then eventually I moved for my PhD and my research work in Barcelona, where I worked at the Center for Genomic Regulation and a lot of things happened there. I've been traveling in different institutes, Baylor and Max Planck and many different places. So if you're a scientist, more or less you have the same or a very similar trajectory, right? And indeed, I did move to UK when I founded LifeBit. So it's a Cambridge company, actually. Why Cambridge and why that decision? Because uh, while I was doing my PhD, while I was working as a researcher, I had actually started a non-for-profit organization called Innovation Forum, and now, which is a network of entrepreneurial scientists, is now the biggest network, uh, I guess, on planet Earth, <laughs> uh, with over hundreds of thousands of uh, entrepreneurial researchers. We spanned three different continents, I think 20 different branches. At that point, you know, it was a group of us co-founding that. And that was my initial endeavors in the, into the business world. And because of that, of course, I, I, I knew very well the different clusters. I knew what the entrepreneurial and the startup scene uh, look across Europe, in US, in Asia. It was very clear to me from very early on that Barcelona was not the place to create deep tech life sciences company. And that's, that's the reason for why I, I moved to UK. And also Alan Barrell is from Cambridge and he was my mentor. He helped me create the company. I, I owe to him the, I owe to him the whole company, I would say, right? 
it was basically network between Cambridge and London was was a better um, environment to develop the build the type of company I wanted to build. So you would say then Barcelona is not the best place to start a company. What makes Cambridge so much better than Barcelona? It, it really depends on the type of the company. When you're trying to build a company like LifeBit, a deep tech, then you need to be very close to a cluster of pharmaceutical clients because they are our predominant clients. Then you need to be close to a cluster of big research institutions. And if you take the golden triangle between London, Cambridge and Oxford, then pretty much there you have a big cluster of big research institutions hospitals, pharma clients, biotech clients. So I think that that's the reason why. It doesn't mean that Barcelona is not good for creating other types of companies. It is absolutely great. It's just more what type of company. I mean, you have companies like Skyscanner, Typeform, so many other companies. You know, I can only begin Viva, for example, that this is like Salesforce. They are in Barcelona and they're doing amazingly well. But they work with different types of clients. Then they, as such, require a completely different you know, ecosystem around them. But at the same time, there are so many potential competitors in the Cambridge area, right? There are a lot of SMEs coming up, particularly in the Cambridge area. So is that good for you? I personally, and also as LifeBait, we just don't perceive competitors. I guess maybe that's one of the big uh, success factors of the company. We just do what we know how to do best. We see problem solution. That's what we see. And we wanted to be in a cluster where we knew there were a lot of people that we can interact, that have the type of problems we were very excited and we knew we could solve better than anyone else. All the rest, does it really matter? You know, at the end of the day, it is the business world. In everything in life, there is competition. But if you're focusing into the competition, then you're already starting from a point where you're like, I'm not good enough and my way of succeeding is how can I be better from what exists out there? Where actually the better way of thinking is like there is a big problem. How can I best solve that problem, you know, in a way that has never been done before? So Maria, having listened to what you have already told us, it seems that collaborations play a huge role at LifeBit. Why are these collaborations, particularly the public-private partnerships, so important for the sector you operate in? The, uh, the biotech sector and especially the genomic sector, the genomic space is undergoing a huge revolution. This is the era that will forever be known as the era of the genomics revolution. And what does that mean? That means that there is a lot of moving ground. And when there is a lot of moving ground, it means that there are a lot of unknowns. So just even if you've done basic biology, you know, evolution knows better how to deal with that. Just form societies to deal with the unknown until you're evolved enough to be by yourself. So I think that would be my biological answer to this in business terms is the singular mind in, in such a moving ground space It's not enough. You need to be using the collective mind. You need to be fostering innovation and you need to be fostering open innovation and you need to be fostering collaboration. So when you are in, operating in such a place and you're trying to do so great things, you need collaboration, right? You need to be there with the brightest mind and making them your friends and hanging out with them and having beers with them, basically. Looking at LifeBit, my impression was, is it too good to be true? Because it seems that you do a lot of things. Where do you draw the line? How can I better define this? Uh, is, is this dichotomy between last generation solutions and this genomics 1.0 and new generation and genomics 2.0, right? 
the Genomics 1.0 solutions, they were merely, if you like, technology provider or not even technology, like a platform provider or a tool provider. But I was being asked at that point, it's just like, so what do you do? Primary analysis, secondary or tertiary? I'm like, hmm, kind of everything. <laughs> and, and do you provide me a particular tool for these things or just like, or is just a platform? So people could not pin us down. And then it was the other type of exotic questions like, and how do you really make money? Because you integrate with all of these open source and you do give quite a lot of things, again, open source's capabilities where, you know, people, you know, don't really pay for a lot of things. So people were very confused. I think by now we're different because if we were to actually look at what people were doing around us, we would, again, be one of the same, right? So how we like to see things in life is, again, problem-solution. What's the problem? What's the solution we can provide? And when we created LifeBit, we created it uh, from at least product perspective and technology-wise, beyond product. What are the, te- the two big technological problems that we are solving? The one is infrastructure, you know, free people from the slavery of infrastructure, data and infrastructure. That was number one. And the second one was like, how can you build cognitive systems that can reason about this data and can analyze this data in a way that the best human minds could do and even better. And that by default, it means creating new technology that's going to be quite a lot of AI based, machine learning, smart algorithms, a lot of things there. And of course, they had to do a lot with data as well, right? Because to answer questions, you need data and you need data to be usable and to be meaningful. For data to be usable and meaningful, you need technology that allows you to combine data, that allows you to integrate data, that allows you to query data. So that's why we do not define boundaries. And we are completely moving away from this concept of we are a tool provider or we are just a technology provider. We are going to move towards the realm of like we are an end-to-end solution provider. We come, you plug us in, and then you know you get the answer to your prayers, if you like. We get you to the final result. That final result being diagnosis, being drugs that you can take forward with absolute certainty on clinical trials. And anything else in between those things that we are actually doing right now, right? And that, that's, that's, I would say, what you're going to be seeing from LifeBit in the next couple of years. Now, how? I cannot really reveal, but you'll see things. Wow, this sounds very exciting. And I guess we all will keep our eyes peeled now. So following on from what you have said, I have one quick question. How important are standards for industry, for companies such as LifeBit and also for academia in the data-driven life science sector? Oh, they are absolutely necessary. If I am to make a very uh, shallow joke, we have standards even, you know, around toilet paper, right? Have you ever noticed that no matter what toilet paper you get, it always actually, you know, fits in your toilet paper holder. And that's because all Toilet paper providers have come and said, this is the diameter of the cylinder that we are going to be building. And they've literally standardized that. And although, you know, this is a very funny, shallow joke, if you like, I cannot find a better way to highlight how important standard is. And especially when we're not even talking about toilet paper, we're talking about how we're literally building the future of precision medicine. And not just precision medicine, but in general, how the well-being of humans and prevention, because already a lot of us are working beyond the boundaries of let's cure diseases and let's diagnose diseases. We're we're even at the prevention levels. How can we diagnose those diseases and prevent them much, much earlier, years before they have appeared? And, And when we're talking about that, of course, you need standards. As I said, life is a big advocate of open source and 
I remember the first years of my research career was all about screaming to the community and every conference I would go that we need more open source tools and how important it is and da 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 and a lot of those things like evolved into all of the great things Elixir is doing right now and and so many other um, initiatives. And then it feels like my later years in my life, I'm just like, guys, we have open source. Now we need to have also better commercial solutions. So imagine this. Imagine, you know, you were going to a bank and you were depositing your money, your millions. And then the bank was revealing you that more than 80 to 90 percent of their systems are built by open source code, by people that have on average two to three years computational training and not even big standards. How would you feel about that? So how would you put the money in that bank or just take your money and say like, they're better saved under my mattress? And this is the reality at which we live. It is changing. All of the beginnings have come. The, the Global Alliance for Genomics and Health, they're trying to drive standards. They're trying to bring people together. We are part of that. I think everyone on head over the shoulders are part of the Global Alliance for Genomics and Health, helping to shape those standards. It is that important. Like I, I literally, I run out of stupid joke to highlight that importance. Um, yeah, it is that critical. In comparison to toilet paper, you don't really know how data is going to be used, right? So therefore, there could be one reason why it's not as standardized as toilet paper. Yes, I mean, absolutely. There are very, very, very good reasons of why you have hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of incredible, well-educated minds coming together and not being able to figure this out. And that's exactly because of what you said. The data is constantly evolving. The technology is constantly evolving behind the technology that is generating the data is constantly evolving. And also the questions that we are asking the data are maybe are evolving 100 times faster than technology and data generation, right? But if data formats change all the time and science advances, so we find out there are new linkages. How do you keep track of those changes? Because they are fast. You need to stay close to what's happening. You need to be able to anticipate where things are going. And also, I think the people, the different actors in the space, they have become smarter. The sequencing companies are becoming smarter on to when they evolve the technology, they are more mindful about whatever is coming out of the machines to be compatible with what comes after the machine. Then the people that create all of the, if you like, the analysis part of the data, uh, they are more mindful about what could be the different types, you know, and they make those things more flexible, you know. But the challenge, if you ask me, is like, we don't even need to wait to generate more data or different data, if you like. The biggest challenge that we are facing right now, even as a company, how do you integrate the existing data? That come in different formats, that come in different standards. Those things just do not talk to each other, you know. And yeah, it's very challenging. Like if I am to give more specific example, genomic data, when they come out of the machines, they are, as I like to call it, orphan data, right? They are just a bunch of like ATC, ATCG and that's it. And you have nothing out of that. And then all of a sudden, you need to be bringing all of these annotations to provide meaning to this sequencing data. The clinical and phenotypic data are the exact opposite. They come with a hairball of like of so many different interpretations and so many different annotations and so many different codings and a particular like diagnosis. And there, a lot of the process that we do in the company is like go the other way around, where we now need to disentangle this hairball and just unify this data and, 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 and make them more organized. So there are a lot of initiatives on standardizing, but they're not there yet. So if I understand it correctly, you see it also as your, your job to integrate this different data. But... Yeah. 
there is no one standard. So one customer might want this while the other customer might want that. And then do you develop one kind of data set for the one customer and then for the other? Sort of. <laughs> so another success within life is like we are very prescriptive with, with our client. I, I, I really like AWS values as a company and one of them is client obsession. Uh, I would say for LifeBit, we, we adhere to a very similar but a bit different value, which is called extreme delivery, right? So we are obsessed with the success of our client. And even when our clients get in the way, we, we tend to push them aside or we say like, we, we, we just then walk away. We say like, you know, maybe, you know, maybe we're not the best fit for you. There are other people out there. Even at LifeIt, we're still learning. It's, it's, it's quite a challenge, I would say. But the key is to be prescriptive. The key is to help your client understand what it takes to achieve the success they envision, right? And then all the way steer them, educate them, handhold them, uh, and be able to get them to that. We do a lot of things for our clients. And we can go down to a level where we just run literally training sessions for our clients, where we just educate them. Having a female bioinformatics entrepreneur on our podcast today, I want to get this one question out. What are your thoughts on the lack of females in our sector? Um, and what has your experience been as a female bioinformatician and entrepreneur? So I tend to not pay much attention to those things. I just go and do me. When people try to just like shush me into meetings because, you know, maybe the first time they see me, they perceive a blonde woman that maybe doesn't have much to say. I just ignore them, interrupt them and just like say what I have to say. And, and I make sure I'm being heard pretty much. But it's, it's not from, I'm just focused on what I need to do and what I have come here to do, right? And with time, I guess people perceive the, the value that I bring onto the table, the value that my team brings onto the table, the value that my company brings onto the table. I cannot complain as much. I've been having incredible people helping me throughout I cannot say that there has been a big discrimination against me. But then I'm also aware that I don't pay much attention to that. So even when there is, I normally, you know, like I, I, I wouldn't even know, to be honest. And, and that would be my general advice. I would be like, just focus on what you have to do and, and just move ahead with that, no matter what. You know, the statistics are statistics, but then you can choose to be one in the many statistics or you can choose to be you. That is how I see things. So, and if you choose to be you, then be the best of you. Th that's how I see things. One thought that I had during our conversation was, well, okay, so, so she is a computer scientist in the life science domain, but you are talking on a, on a level that is fairly easy to comprehend, very management driven. So if I had known that you have the, all this background, I wouldn't have guest because many life scientists that I meet have difficulties to getting into this language. So what's uh, my secret there? Two things. <laughs> Innovation Forum, it's a non-for-profit and it's a way for you to do a hobby where you can get trained into business language, business world, uh, business thinking. Not only just acquire the business understanding in the business language, but also understand how you can explain better the science that's happening out there, the impact that you're trying to have, you know, the impact that other people are trying to have. And I will encourage people to either go for innovation form or go for equivalent things. Uh, that was number one for me. Number two, so in general, like getting as much, I've gotten so much training. I, I work with many different coaches. I, I read quite a lot. 
Uh, so definitely training helps quite a lot, but also in my case, like I've been, I tend to speak to investors, let's say more often than I would like to. <laughs> so the question for me is, or the question for you rather is how does open data shape business? Oh, it's very important, especially in an AI world uh, where we are trying to learn from data and we're trying to simulate biology in general, like life sciences processes. Yet data is very critical. I wouldn't even do justice starting to name all of the reasons why data is important, given the how many great lecturers and articles, publications. Uh, but even beyond that, data saves lives, right? It was just like a motto used from many different institutes. It's not that data are just important when it comes to business. Data is important for what businesses are trying to do in order to save lives. If you think that data now saves lives, then it's just, of course, we need to be trying to generate data. We need to try to donate data. We have been working, for example, with Stefan Beck and the, uh, the Personal Genome Project. Stefan Beck's vision was that how can we get people to donate genomes? Because we need more of this. Literally, even today, we had meetings where we were looking at the different data that are coming within Genomics England and we're looking how statistical significance for the different variants and and the different biomarkers that can help us diagnose diseases, create cures, amplifies with the more data we have. And, and Stephen Beck's vision was exactly that. Like, how can we get people even donate their genomes to have more data, to have more open data? I believe it encompasses everything. If data can be used to save lives, then it's very easy for you then to understand the socioeconomical impact that that can have. And I think that pretty much summarizes all. So thank you very much for having us today. Thanks for listening to the Data for Life podcast. And if you like our content, then follow us on LinkedIn or Twitter at Alexi Europe or Captain Future. <laughs>